Hello, I'm John Rossi, a touring drummer with a love of all things animal. When I'm on the road, I visit as many zoos, aquariums... Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Hey, what's going on there? Hello? Hello? We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you Rossafari Zoo News. News you can use from the world of zoos and conservation. Every week, we bring you breaking news and analysis from around the globe, featuring the animals you love and the people who care for them. And here's your anchorman, John Rossi. Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of Zoo News. As some of you may have heard, this week the AZA has decided to deny accreditation to the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium. With this issue being so important to the zoo community at large, and with my connections to the Columbus Zoo meaning so much to me, I decided that I would eschew the usual fun and frivolity of zoo news and do a deep dive into this topic today. I'll resume with the other stories from this week and next week in next week's episode, and um... Hey, if this is your first episode of my podcast, I promise you, you should check out some other episodes for like fun songs, silly puns, jokes, and, you know, interesting actual tales from the world of zoos, aquariums, and conservation. But today is not that episode. So before I get into the topic in depth, I want to explain a little bit about my relationship with the Columbus Zoo. First of all, I am a member of the zoo, and it is one of my favorite zoos in the country. I have made numerous personal relationships there, as well as many additional professional ones, thanks to this podcast. As a matter of fact, before all this blew up, I have confirmed three interviews with various staff members for the podcast at some still undetermined point in the future. Thanks, COVID. I also have featured one of their amazing keepers, Christy Nuss, on an episode already. All of that leads me to have a definite bias towards the zoo, but hopefully those of you that listen know that my loyalty rests with the animals and the keepers, not the property or the name. You also know that I am a huge fan of the AZA, regularly touting them as the gold standard of captive animal care. I like to think that my love of both institutions makes me a fairly unbiased source of discussion on this topic, but I also have to admit to you all that I have had a stomach ache since I first heard about this news because it is just killing me. Also, I want to be clear that um, while I normally do this podcast as just kind of a rehashing of things that I have read, I decided to go really deep on this one. I have spoken to numerous, numerous people that work at or have worked at the Columbus Zoo. I believe that even if you've read basically everything that's been released online about this so far, you're going to hear some new content in this podcast. You're also going to hear some myths dispelled, so uh, let's get to it, shall we? Late on Tuesday, October 5th, a few news sources in Columbus broke the news that the zoo would be losing accreditation by the AZA, with both the zoo and the AZA announcing the failure of the accreditation process early the next day. Having so many contacts at the zoo, I had already been told about this and started reaching out to a variety of people to discuss what is going on. All of these conversations, by the way, off record, um, as well as things that were reported in the reputable press. So just wanted to give you a heads up about that. Not going to hear any names or specific stories. 
but and I mentioned the reputable press for a reason. Before we get too far into this, I want to address some of the rumors I have seen popping up being spread by your traditional anti-captivity people who claim to be animal rights activists, but who often propose things that could only hurt animal populations, like releasing all zoo animals into the wild. The decision of the ACA has nothing to do with anything found pertaining to the welfare of the animals currently at the zoo, nor any of the work done by the keepers there. In fact, in those areas of the report, the Columbus Zoo got exemplary marks. Dan Ash, president of the AZA, said as much in his press release about this decision. This decision also had nothing to do with the so-called Zanesville Massacre of 2011. I don't want to go too off-topic here, but for those that don't know, that was an event in which the owner of a private wild animal preserve that was known to be problematic decided to release a bunch of his animals before dying by suicide. These animals were just released into the wild in Zanesville, Ohio, near where the Wilds campus is located. The animals included 18 Bengal tigers, 16 lions, and multiple other dangerous animals who proved to be too dangerous to capture. Jack Hanna and many others involved at the Columbus Zoo at the time assisted the police department and recommended that in many cases the animals be put down after they attacked people. Anti-captivity people have been using this as an example of, quote, cruelty of the staff of the Columbus Zoo, end quote, ever since, and are now trying to tie that experience into this lack of accreditation. And that is a blatant lie. In fact, the zoo has had its accreditation re-upped since the massacre happened and had no issues there. So if none of that is why the zoo lost accreditation, then what exactly did happen? Well, according to both the zoo and the AZA, there were two main issues. The first is that the previous president of the zoo, Tom Stelf, and vice president and CFO Greg Bell were both partaking in inappropriate business practices. This bit of news shouldn't be entirely shocking to listeners of Rossafari. I have reported on this very topic on the show already. Back in March, the Columbus Dispatch completed an investigation into the upper-level management of the zoo that showed the two had been misusing funds. The zoo was incredibly transparent about this issue, bringing in an outside audit team to look at the situation and releasing the findings to the public. Both Stealth and Bell were allowed to resign, and the zoo put measures into place to make sure that these abuses of power would not be allowed to take place again. The types of financial abuses included zoo-owned suites at sports complexes being used for private use without repaying the zoo, allowing relatives to live while paying a reduced rent in houses that had been gifted to the zoo, using a zoo-owned RV for personal use, and other things that are sadly all too common in corporate America today. Both the original investigation and the audit firm found that the two men were acting in bad faith, but that there was no reason to believe that anyone at the zoo was aware of the transgressions, and Stolf even committed to repaying the amount he swindled from the zoo back to the organization, though I admit I could not find anything confirming or denying whether that took place. And look, I'm not going to downplay this issue. This is a real problem, and the money adds up. I have heard many people point out that this doesn't directly impact animal welfare, and 
That is mostly true, but it's also true that every dollar swindled away from the zoo is a dollar that could have gone into animal care, or the amazing conservation efforts the zoo is a part of. Still, it is worth noting that both the journalists who broke the story and the independent auditors hired to investigate the problem believe that this was not some big cover-up or conspiracy, but merely the inappropriate actions of two individuals at the top of the organization who are no longer a part of the zoo. It is also important to know that the zoo brought back their previous president, Jerry Boren, to take over the reins until they hired Tom Schmidt, formerly of the Texas State Aquarium, to serve as the new president and CEO moving forward. Both Boren and Schmidt are incredibly well-respected in the field, and Boren already started implementing the changes proposed by the independent audit firm to ensure nothing like this could happen again. Now that's important, as AZA accreditation is supposed to be based on a snapshot of the zoo when the investigators are present, and when the investigation occurred, the zoo had already cut ties with Stolf and Bell and taken the steps I just mentioned. Both the zoo and the AZA confirmed as much in their press releases, with the AZA stating they need more time to see if the steps are actually working before agreeing to grant accreditation again. The second issue facing the zoo is both the issue the AZA claims is bigger and is, well, murkier, to be honest with you. I've also reported on this issue in a previous episode of Zoo News, but let's go into a lot more detail here. There is a new documentary coming out soon called The Conservation Game, which apparently sheds quite a negative light on Jack Hanna and the way he obtained certain ambassador animals. The documentary can't be viewed by the general public yet, though there have been some press and festival showings, but early reports paint a bad picture. I have to admit, after seeing the harm done by the largely fictionalized Blackfish documentary, I remain skeptical of any documentary with an obvious bias, especially one that has the involvement of Carol Baskin. Yep, that Carol Baskin. From the Tiger King series? So, yeah, I enter into this topic with some skepticism, but there's also clearly something there. In the conservation game, the filmmaker leads the audience to believe that celebrities who have been taking animals onto TV shows, especially juvenile big cats, have gotten those specimens not from accredited zoos, but from the illegal wildlife trade. And that sucks. A lot. I absolutely do not condone that idea. It even seems like the zoo was set up to allow this, as, well, given that until recently the ambassador animals did not fall under the purview of the vice president of animal care, but instead reported directly to the CFO, which is something that is obviously really problematic. But... I also want to look at something else here, which is the fact that Jack Hanna has not been anything more than an ambassador for the Columbus Zoo for quite a while. Jack was hired at the zoo as executive director in 1978 and served in the position for 14 years until 1992, at which point he became director emeritus, no longer having anything to do with the day-to-day -day operations of the zoo, but in fact serving as a celebrity figurehead. There is no denying that he was a huge presence at the zoo, but it's hard to say exactly what role he played. 
His celebrity would certainly have given him access to acquire animals illegally, and his freedom from the zoo would also have given him the ability to function away from the rest of the leadership team. Having not seen the documentary myself, but reading comments from the filmmakers after the news came out about this situation, it is my understanding that it is believed that Jack and maybe a few other people at the top were involved with this, but that it was not widely known at the zoo. It is also worth mentioning that, as Jack became director emeritus and spent more time on TV shows and building his celebrity, for the vast majority of the time he was there, the people he would report directly to were... You guessed it, Tom Stolf and Greg Bell, the people who were mentioned in the earlier part of this episode. Now, in my investigation, I kept hearing a name come up that I haven't seen mentioned in any of the reporting so far. Susie Rapp. Susie served at the zoo for 39 years, retiring in July as the VP of Animal Programs. Susie worked incredibly closely with Jack Hanna and took over the Ambassador Animals after he moved on from that area. She would also frequently travel with him and the Ambassador Animals, oftentimes with animals staying in her hotel room. Which, by the way, is totally common with that kind of thing, and I'm, I'm not putting that down. I'm sure there are lots of examples of that, and, but just saying, that's, that's what she did. It was Susie who would have kept any relationships with the improper animal vendors that started with Jack going, and also Susie who kept her department reporting to different senior staff than any of the other animal departments. As a matter of fact, while wielding incredible power herself, Susie would have also reported exclusively to Tom Stolf and Greg Bell while also working with Jack Hanna. Noting a theme here yet? As I mentioned, Susie retired unexpectedly in July, right as word about the issues being presented in the conservation game started to come to light. In my off-the-record conversations with multiple current and former staff members of the zoo, Susie's name was brought up every single time. Though a bit of a celebrity herself, at least to zoo fans, I have yet to find a single staffer that interacted with her or even heard stories about her that didn't have concerns. I have heard multiple people tell me they believed she was involved in decisions that were not made in the best way, though no one was able to give any examples of full-on animal welfare issues. It's more like that at times when a tough decision had to be made, Susie would look at what was best for her own wishes and interests while still taking care of the animal in question. Now look, I know I'm being infuriatingly vague here, but I simply can't give specific examples without risking getting my sources in trouble. I will say this, in the multiple stories shared with me, my reaction was always like, okay, I can kind of see how that was an okay choice, but it also sounds a little shady. I also have no way to assess the validity of these stories, but I can tell you this. As I said, there is not one former or current staffer I spoke to that didn't mention Susie and believe that she was a major part of this problem. Okay, so I admit those two issues are legitimately big issues especially the ambassador animal one. But here's the thing. The Columbus Zoo genuinely seems to have been unaware of these issues. The board members, the staff members, the other people in authority were left in the dark about the possibly illegal and immoral actions being taken by four people. 
And as soon as those issues came to light, the zoo took every step they could to ensure those issues would go away and also addressed them publicly. As I have mentioned in here already, all of these issues were already reported by me on former episodes of Zoo News because of press releases I saw from the Columbus Zoo. This was not swept under the rug. All four main players are gone. Auditors were brought in on the financial end, and an assessment of every place the zoo obtains animals from was undertaken, with many vendors being told they will not be used anymore unless they improve their animal welfare. By July of this year, every step the zoo could take has been taken. There is no one at the zoo that is currently considered associated with these unfortunate practices, and even the creator of the conservation game released a statement today saying he hopes the new measures put in place will work. Dan Ash, the president of the AZA, also acknowledged in the press release about the revoked membership that the zoo has already taken these steps, but that the independent accreditation panel doesn't believe they can grant accreditation without seeing that the steps will continue to be effective for a longer period of time. It is worth mentioning that this is not the first time the AZA has encountered a major problem like this with an incredibly well-respected zoo. In fact, only eight years ago, an issue arose with the Toronto Zoo. I won't relitigate the issue here, but it involved moving elephants to a non-AZA facility as demanded by the City Council of Toronto, with the move weirdly paid for by Bob Barker, then host of The Price is Right. The zoo attempted to get city council to change its plans, but was unsuccessful, and because of that, lost its accreditation for four years, finally getting it back in 2016. This is worth mentioning for a few reasons, not the least of which is that I keep seeing people who talk about this issue saying the zoo never actually lost its accreditation over the issue, when in fact it did. It's also worth mentioning because the zoo was allowed to stay in the various SSPs and zoo staff were allowed to continue their work with those SSPs, which is one of the major concerns about a losing accreditation. As you've learned before on this podcast, when animals move from zoo to zoo for breeding recommendations, they are seen more as loans to fellow AZA SSP members and those can be recalled at any point. Thus, one of the worst-case scenarios for the Columbus Zoo is that they would be booted from all SSPs and have to send all of those breeding animals back to their home zoos or to other zoos for breeding recommendations. Given the disaster this would cause both to SSPs and to the zoos that would suddenly have to house additional animals, I doubt this will happen, but it is possible. A bigger issue facing the zoo is a law that is currently on the books in Ohio. Remember that Zanesville massacre I talked about at the top of all of this? Well, it turns out that Jack Hanna and many others involved in Ohio zoos and conservation helped get a law passed to prevent that kind of thing from happening again, 2012's Dangerous Wild Animals and Restricted Snakes Act. I have spent way too long trying to decipher this entire law because it has a lot of exemptions and weirdness, but as far as I can tell, it prohibits facilities from owning dangerous animals such as big cats unless they are accredited by the AZA or ZAA or are a research facility, a circus, a veterinarian providing care to a specific animal, or a certified wildlife rehab facility. While one could argue that both research and rehab do occur at the zoo, and that, frankly, there were some clowns running it like a circus for a while, 
Okay, it's still the Rasafari podcast. I had to get one or two jokes in. The loss of accreditation could lead to the zoo's ownership of many animals being illegal in the state. The list of dangerous animals in the act includes hyenas, wolves, lions, tigers, jaguars, leopards, clouded leopards, snow leopards, cheetahs, lynxes, cougars, caracals, servals, bears, elephants, rhinos, hippos, African wild dogs, Komodo dragons, alligators, crocodiles, caiman, gharials, and non-human primates other than lemurs. So yeah, assuming I'm reading the law correctly, and should the state of Ohio decide to crack down on the zoo, they would arguably be legally required to get rid of all those species. Add to that the ones they could lose from the SSPs, and you paint a really drastically horrible picture for the zoo. One caused by not a single person that is still there. And ultimately, that's what I keep struggling with in this scenario. The AZA is supposed to be the gold standard of accreditation, taking into account not only the welfare of the animals in question, but also the way the zoo is run in a variety of ways. So, I understand the idea that they felt the need to do something, given that it was time for reaccreditation and all of this happened just months before. However, the denial of accreditation seems extreme to me for the following reason. Every AZA accreditation inspection can have three results, pass, fail, or table. When the board decides to table accreditation, it simply pushes the decision back for a year, using the time to make sure the zoo has implemented changes necessary to pass the following year, but without a change to the status of the zoo. Dan Ash's press release from the AZA stated, in part, I am confident the leadership and board of directors at Columbus are taking these matters seriously, and, in fact, they have already instituted significant changes. Yesterday's news about the selection of Tom Schmid as their new president and CEO is welcome and encouraging. However, the commission felt that additional time will be required to let these and other changes take hold. To the employees of the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium, we acknowledge your good work. Much of the accreditation inspection report was exceedingly positive and reflective of your professionalism. We hope to see Columbus Zoo and Aquarium and you back within our community soon. Y'all, that is literally the point of tabling the decision for a year. Additional time? That's what you need? How about, oh, I don't know, a year? Because here's the main problem that I have with all of this. There is literally no one at the Columbus Zoo right now that was involved with these issues to the best that I can find, and I'm sure that many of the people I have seen taking joy in this decision, or even taking partial credit for it, would be pointing out those issues if they still existed there. The people being punished are the keepers, the curators, the vet staff, the people who, as of now, have no idea if they will be allowed to keep the animals they love. The people who were reviewed by the board so positively and professionally that Dan Ash mentioned it in his press release. In speaking with people that hire at other AZA zoos, I have often been told that working for a non-AZA zoo is seen as a blemish at many of these zoos. Now, this is not always the case, as some zoos thrive on being kind of starter AZA zoos for keepers trying to get into AZA-accredited facilities, but working at a non-AZA zoo definitely limits one's career options. There are also millions of dollars in funding and grants 
and loans and all kinds of cool stuff that can only go to accredited zoos, meaning this could have huge financial ramifications for the zoo. Now, while I believe the zoo is big enough and famous enough to survive without accreditation, assuming it can get past that Ohio law and the SSP stuff, that is still money being taken away from staff that were not involved in this issue, from animal care, and from the amazing conservation work done at and by the zoo. This is just another example of people at the top of an organization doing wrong with minimal consequences while those below them suffer. And that kind of thing is infuriating to me, even if I do honestly understand where the AZA is coming from. So, after a little over 24 hours spent talking to a bunch of people and reading everything I can about this, that is my understanding of what has happened. Now, I... I want to clarify that this is still new. This is still fresh. This is uh, what we in the game call breaking news. And so more things can come to light that will change my opinion or uh, change some of what I said here. We all know how that works. But I am confident in the sources that I spoke to and the articles that I read. In talking to staff at the zoo, they all expected that Something would happen, but everyone assumed it would be a tabling of the decision, followed by confirmation of accreditation after the parameters put in place by the zoo were proven to work for the next year. I really hope the zoo wins the appeal process. I'm not entirely sure how that process works, and honestly, I'm exhausted in trying to get this episode out to y'all. But I do know that this decision was not unanimous, despite the fact that the committee is often unanimous in their decision-making when it comes to accreditation. I love the Columbus Zoo. I love the people there. I love the animals there. I, I love it there. I love the work that they do. And if the AZA upholds this decision, I'm still going to love it there because I know that they take amazing care of their animals and are working to fix these issues. Also, regardless of the outcome of the appeal, I still love the AZA, and I really respect the fact that they are willing to take on any member, even one as huge and respected as the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium, or previously the Toronto Zoo. But I do think this has been a bit of an overreach for them, and I hope the appeal process can fix it. And hey, if not, I'm willing to bet that the ZAA will have a new member just as soon as possible. I would love to hear your thoughts on this, and thank you to all of you who have already reached out with them, because I've been hearing from a lot of you today. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear from y'all. You know how to reach me, at Rasafari on the socials, and uh, rasafaripod at gmail.com. And like I mentioned, um, this is Zoo News for this week, even though it's coming out on Thursday. I do not have a fourth episode in me this week, y'all. But next week, I am going to make sure to take care of getting all of those lovely stories out and the fun songs will be back and, and all the good times will be back. You know, I don't want to end this on a totally sad note, though. So um, here's one Zoo News story from the week. Three years ago, the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute released a story about a white-naped crane named Walnut that fell in love with her keeper, Chris Crow, and how the Institute was able to use that to uh, basically have them get married and start having chicks. Obviously not biologically, but he was able to use their relationship to help her get artificially inseminated when she was unwilling 
to actually deal with members of her own species. Now, I mentioned that this was three years ago, so why is it in Zoo News? Well, because the story got discovered and reignited on TikTok, and that's how the internet and social media works now, so it's all popular again. And it's a cute story, and I love it. Just a a dude named Chris Crow married to a crane. Yay. Yay conservation. Yay helping breeding. Yay species. Yay good things. Yay zoos. And now, here come my accreditation. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.